Does our educational system represent the world we live in? This week's guest, Tiffany Ott, explains how she has transformed her classroom to prepare her students using mastery learning, self-paced curriculum, and standards-based grading. I'm so excited to have the last member of the Teach Better team on the podcast as we dive into some really fun educational topics. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks. I am so excited to be here chatting. I always love chatting with you. It's good times. Yes. We had a chance to connect on Facebook Live with Teach Better team. And then also lately, I got to be with you all at the Teach Better Conference 19. It was a blast and it was so much fun to meet each one of you, especially you, Tiffany. Thank you. I, you know, I feel like I'm finally recovered from that experience. It's like, what, a week and a half in the yes. past. And I feel like my brain is finally starting to function again because the last day of that conference, it was just jello. My yeah. brain was busted. Yeah, I finally <laughs> it was got wonderful. <laughs> yes, I. my voice was gone all of last week. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was on those bonus episodes I've been releasing. I was very raspy, so it's good to get my voice back. <laughs> Tiffany, I just want to jump in with with you as an educator, I know you've been in multiple realms as far as public education, boarding school, and then also you, of course, are on the Teach Better team. So if you wouldn't mind just letting our listeners know kind of what your educational journey is. Sure. So I have been in teaching now, I think this is year 12, maybe year 11. I stopped counting carefully, <laughs> um, but it's been over a decade, which is a little bit mind boggling. I started teaching in a middle school environment. I love middle schoolers. They are kind of like my my soul in teaching. Yes. Uh, math and science, I switched at some point to teaching third through fifth graders in an elementary school. And just recently I switched completely out of public education, which was a really interesting and, and terrifying jump for me to be completely honest, into a private boarding school as a high school teacher. Hmm. So everything that I was familiar with and comfortable with, middle schoolers, upper elementary, and now teaching a grade level I'd never taught before in an environment so completely different than what I'd ever taught before. So I've had a lot of different experiences with age ranges. I've taught math, science, reading, not history, but pretty much everything else. Mm -hmm. And I'm just always looking for ways to push myself more and learn more and put myself in situations that are hard because I love learning. So I do that. And then I also work with the Teach Better team, which is, um, I don't even know what you would call us, Josh. We're a group of education geeks who talk with other people about education and try and help support as many educators as we possibly can in lots of ways. Yeah, you are a true team, and I got to see you all in action um, at the conference. And um, just as far as your role, I know that you are considered on the Teach Better team the Director of Curriculum Development. So what does that role entail? That's a good question. <laughs> you know, um, we a few years back, we decided that we all should probably have titles. So that's my title. And I, I do a lot of work with the development of online courses through Teach Better Academy. I really like editing video and creating courses and kind of laying those out. So that's kind of where the curriculum development piece came in. I also do a lot of work with Mastery Chat, which is our weekly Twitter chat. That is my little baby that I've seen grow up over the last two and a half years yeah, from first chat with six people mm -hmm. for which we're on the team to now we have over a hundred every week and it's just a really great community. 
Um, and I do a lot of work on social media too, talking to people, helping teachers, connecting. So really director of curriculum development is just the title I do a lot. (laughs) We all do on the team. When you have a small team, everybody has to take on many, many hats. And so we all just kind of flow in and out of those hats frequently. When you're working with leaders, what are some of the issues that you're seeing with, you know, the educational system and what are they battling with that your, your team really combats? You know, I've talked to a lot of administration. I've talked to a lot of teachers in many different environments. Mm-hmm. Everywhere I go, people feel like their challenge is huge and it's bigger than the challenges other people have. And it doesn't matter if you're talking to two people that are in cities next to each other. And I don't say that to kind of trivialize it because yes, your problem feels huge and Mm -hmm. to you it is huge. And so it's not specifically a common challenge that I see across places, but what I see is that people feel their challenge is insurmountable, no matter what that challenge is. And I think that a lot of the work we do I mean, we can give people strategies on assessment, on standards-based grading, mastery learning, on community integration. Like we, we train people on a lot of different, you know, topics in education. But I think more than anything, what we really try to do is listen to people, validate their concerns, mm-hmm. but at the same time say, okay, so yes, that's a concern. What are you going to do about it? So it feels like the biggest thing districts and leaders need is just to be able to say, this is the problem. Let's lay it all out there. And now let's actually do something about it and helping leaders take those steps to positively do something about it is really, I think our forte. Yeah. And Tiffany, I know you make a huge impact with educators throughout the country. So in your experience, Mm -hmm. which leadership skill was the most difficult to develop? (laughs) I have learned a lot in uh, the years that I've been an educator So when I was starting out, new educator, um, I've always had big ideas. I've I've always, I'm a fan of change. I'm a fan of pushing the boundaries and I am not at all opposed to throwing out everything I've done and starting over at square one if I feel like it might be better for kids. Mm -hmm. And when I was first starting out in my career, I would speak out very vocally amongst a room full of other people, you know, 15, 20 years into their career and say, well, why don't we just try this guys? Like, let's just, let's just do it. What are you, what's wrong with you? That didn't work uh, very well at all. So, and I vividly remember probably my second year of teaching, there was some conversation happening at a staff meeting. I don't remember what the topic of the conversation was, but I did just that. I said, guys, I'm actually doing this in my classroom, the thing they're telling us to do that you don't like, and it's working really well. I can show you how to do it if you want. And the icy stares of death that (laughs) shot my way. And I was so mad at them because I was like, you all are so wrong here because you're not seeing how cool this could be. And so I think that the thing that I have learned more as I've no longer a 23 year old teacher with all the ideas to fix the world is that you may have a really, really good idea and you may be right about what decision is going to be right for kids. But if you don't figure out how to say it in a way that people can hear it, it doesn't matter how good your idea is. And 
right in line with that, I have learned that if there's somebody who's really resistant to an idea, I am not going to give them any ideas, <laughs> like no matter how I say it. So my strategy with that is just listen, just listen and say and ask, uh, you know, 180 days in the school year, right? Spend the first 140 asking them every morning, how are you doing today? Mm-hmm. Right. What did you do last night with your family? How's your kid? Oh, I heard they were sick. Right. 140 days of that just building the relationship with the human being so that eventually you get an opportunity to say something that will be heard. And that patience is something that I really struggled with early in my career. And I think is the greatest skill I've learned to still be looking for the opportunities to impact without forcing those opportunities on somebody. Cause then they won't be, they, they won't be taken. They won't be heard. That was a hard lesson. Yeah. <laughs> I always love providing leaders with examples of practical strategies and initiatives. So is there one initiative you've implemented on your campus or in your district that you are extremely proud of? I do a lot of work with mastery learning mm-hmm. and the concepts of standards-based grading and reassessment. And I think that the world we live in today does not jive well and does not reflect the world of education as it has been. And so I have turned my own classroom into a standards-based classroom, even in schools and districts that are very traditional grading. And I have been really pleased to see that percolate out a little bit. You know, it, it started as me kind of being like the lonely person in my school. And then this teacher over there said, what are you doing? Like, are you crazy? And then this other teacher said, oh, let me hear about that. And then my admin came in and said, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, it's like gradually bringing people into your fold. Um, anything having to do with mastery-based instruction, I think is, is so critically powerful. And I have, I have this other world of interest that I also um, do a lot of reading and thinking about, and that's instructional technology. Mm-hmm. And I think that frequently people think mastery learning is sticking kids on a computer and having them work through a program. And so I'm really passionate about helping people see what mastery learning actually is, what student-paced instruction actually is, and how it looks not a bunch of kids atomized in a classroom working alone, but how it really is the collaborative way the entire world works. I think that there's this big misconception between a mastery-based classroom doesn't reflect the reality of the world, which is about as untrue as you could possibly find. Because in the world, as adults in careers, you are constantly given chances to improve and reassess. You know what I mean? Like it's just, oh, yeah. it's just a constant part of it. So the more I can talk to people about how this concept isn't scary and it doesn't have to be overwhelming and it doesn't have to be you know, like throwing a bomb on the world of education as it is. It's just simply tweaking what we do to a way that reflects the reality of the world we live in. I I could talk for hours about that. Oh, I could too. Uh, It's funny because we're actually working through standards-based grading on my campus. And so that conversation actually occurred not too long ago with a group of teachers in regards to real life situations where we reassess, you know, to driver's license, to teaching license, to even us as administrators and what's called TTES, which is the teacher assessment system 
it's still not punitive. It's a reassessment yeah. over and over and giving the best score, if you will, based yeah. on what we see um, over a sample. I was just talking the other day. I love that you brought that up because a good friend of mine, somebody I've known for 20 years, which is weird to say, um, he's an engineer. He's an electrical engineer. And he has been in his job for 15 years. And just a quick background, as an engineer, you have to take something called the PE, mm-hmm. which is the big massive test you take after you've been working for five years to get like officially certified as a professional engineer. He's taking it three times. Mm-hmm over the course of 15 years. And he's hoping this most recent time he passed it. It's like the world does not work in summative assessment a month after you learned the content. It, no. it just doesn't. Yeah. And I think that education as a whole, and this applies to much more than just grading practices and, and instructional practices, but education as a whole really needs to adjust, really needs to recognize what's actually happening in the world. and it's very difficult to move in education. It's very hard. And I am constantly pushing and constantly looking for ways for us just to talk Mm -hmm. about the possibilities instead of just closing our door and sitting in our classroom. We've got to talk about this and what it means for education as a profession, for what it means for education as a philosophy, and for what it means for like the entire generations that we're impacting every day and what we're setting them up for. Um, so if there's anything I'm passionate about in education, it's probably waking us all up so we can maybe actually prepare our kids for the world they're going into. Because it's a lot different than when I started 10 years ago. You talked about challenging you know, some perceptions with the teachers, but let's talk about challenging the students. So how in your classroom are you challenging what learning really is? Oh, I like this question so much. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm such a teaching geek. Um, okay, so the students that I work with at my school right now generally aren't the the strongest math students. Mm-hmm. So they come into my class. They've had you know kindergarten through eighth grade of math instruction, which is almost exclusively fairly traditional. Um, although I kind of hate that word because it becomes like a bad word in in education, but certainly not like what they're going to have in my class. Right. And they come in and they expect teacher tells me information. I maybe write it down, might do some practice problems for homework. And then there's going to be a test on it that I'm going to cram for. And that does not work in my classroom. And so when students come into my room and I kind of give them the rundown of what class is, they first get really excited because we don't have any unit tests in my room. We have a daily five or six question skills check, we call it. It makes, takes 10, 15 minutes. And then I don't talk at them for more than 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then they have time to work collaboratively for 30, 40, 45 minutes, right? And so I'm talking to them about the structure of the class and how the grading format works. And I'm not grading your homework. I'm not you know, and, and they're like, oh, cool. This is great. It's going to be the best, easiest math class ever. And then about a month and a half in, they realize that all of that's great. But in exchange for that, I'm expecting that they know it mm-hmm. and that they retain it. Because the, the flip side of mastery learning is that, you know, there's this big philosophy of I don't care when you know it. I care that you know it. That's like something I say to my students all the time. Like, if you don't get it a week after I teach you, fine. 
you're going to get another chance to show me. The flip side of that coin, though, is if you crammed for it and got it on Monday, but can't retain it until the week after, you haven't mastered it. Mm -hmm. And so when the reality of that starts setting in for my students, it's painful. And they spend like the next month really disliking me, <laughs> which feels great. Yeah. As I'm like putting my heart and soul into this. <laughs> And then something magical starts to happen when you actually hold them accountable to really learning and not just checking off the boxes or turning in assignments, but actually learning it to the point where now we are three months, two and a half months into the school year. And we've kind of gone through that roller coaster and they're starting to come back up and they're like, oh, this is what working and trying and striving to learn actually looks like. And I really can be successful in this class, even if I never thought I was good at math. And even if I never thought I was a math person, my success in this class doesn't depend on me just getting math magically. My success in this class depends on me knowing what it means to learn and knowing what it means to get help when I need it and ask classmates and ask peers. And so that shift, like <sighs> I have chills right now because it's like so exciting when I see it in my students. Um, that's really about challenging their concept of what learning is and who they are as humans, because we're not just, you know, you don't go to school just to get your math credit. At least you shouldn't, you shouldn't. right? That's not what this is about. You, this is your life. This is how you're learning. This experience you have right now is going to shape who you are in the future. So I'm not going to make it something you can just skate through and cram and off you go. I would be missing the world's biggest opportunity to actually impact lives. Um, so that's a cool process. Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> another fun, should be. yeah. Another fun thing too, is this is my second year at the school. So even my students who were very hesitant all of last year, because they didn't like the way I taught. They hated this mastery stuff. It's really fun to see them walk back into my office this year and be like, can we just like meet for two hours and talk about everything? I'm like, yes, yes, we can. Let's do that. It's just so fun for me. <laughs> that actually kind of leads me to my next question. So you are at a boarding school now and I know you were in public education. So what is the biggest difference between the two? Because I think you are my only guest that actually works at a boarding <laughs> school. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. Growing up, I lived 10 minutes from the school I currently work at. It's a Western Reserve Academy in Northeast Ohio. And my best friend went to school there. And I remember being insanely jealous of her getting to go to the, like the school that to me seemed like Hogwarts. Yeah. Um, I went to visit her for a day and she spent the whole day in these discussion-based, really small classes, and they were hard. And I was so excited by that because I was bored to tears in my classroom. Not that I didn't have great teachers, I was just bored. Yeah. And it seemed like this absolutely unattainable thing because my family wasn't well off. And there's this conception about boarding schools as being this like very old-fashioned idea or very elitist for the very wealthiest of people. And I was so joyfully and pleasantly surprised when I actually got to know what this school is, that that is so not true, not true at all. More than half our kids have scholarships to attend. We have students from every economic background. We have students from all over the world coming from any kind of situation you could imagine. And we draw on that rich diversity to really help move all of our conversations forward. 
And that's what is really exciting about it for me and has been so wonderful to learn that my conception was absolutely wrong. Mm -hmm. We do have kids at the school who come from very wealthy families who, to use the phrase old money, right? Like there, we have some kids like that there, but walking down brick row, which is the sidewalk on campus, you wouldn't know it. You, you wouldn't know who's who, but it's not this feeling of elitism. So, so that's something that's been really nice. Mm-hmm. I think also coming from public education, growing up in public education, and then, you know, jumping the fence over to this other world of education, it really is these, it's these two separate bubbles. It's like most people in public ed, many of them don't even know boarding schools still exist, yeah. right? And if they do, they have this wrong idea about what they are. And then in boarding school, there is this really interesting phenomenon that a lot of people that work in boarding schools, grew up in boarding schools, attended boarding schools, parents attended boarding schools. And so it's like, they're really immersed in that world. And then there's a handful of us who have bridged both worlds. And there's a lot of strengths of a boarding school model. And I think probably the one that has been most striking to me is in my 10 years in public ed, the school day ends at 3.30, 3.45, and the kids go home. Mm-hmm. And you will try to go to a basketball game. You will try and make it to the band concert. You'll, you'll try and go to those functions to support your students and to see them shine in the ways that they shine. But at boarding school, the school day doesn't ever end. I mean, class ends at 3.15 and then They have their athletics practices and their study hours. And then there's dinner in the dining hall where faculty and students are all sitting together talking to each other. I am teaching my students geometry and I'm teaching them what to do when when your boyfriend breaks up with you and you're devastated, but you still have to function because that boyfriend is in your peer group. And I could have some of those conversations when I was a middle school teacher and I loved those conversations, but you could never get that into it. Um, I'm there on Saturdays. I'm there on Sunday evenings. I run study hall on Wednesday nights and I am incredibly deeply immersed into the lives of my students. There's a, there's, when, when you work at a boarding school, you are the parent of those students because their parents are miles and miles away. And so you get to be parent and teacher. And it's such a cool fusion that you get to have. And in public school, a lot of times we talk about like wraparound services and before care and after care and showing up for your students' events. But there's a there's a level of that that you get in boarding school that is really difficult to build in in public education. And so that's that's been so so joyful for me. On the flip side, there's some things that that boarding school really needs to learn from public education. Most faculty at boarding school are experts in their content area, which isn't extremely atypical for high school, but in boarding school, oftentimes the same certification rules don't apply. Mm -hmm. So a fair chunk of them have never actually received training in educational theory. And so there's a, there's a gap there that I think boarding school could and is trying to fill. I think that, that they're getting there but I think it's a slow process. Uh, If things change in public education slowly, they probably change twice as slowly in in private education because there's not so many external pressures to change. I think also 
the world of education has changed so much when it comes to standards and expectations and the kind of thinking we expect students to do and what Common Core looks like. And if you look at Common Core standards, which have their downfalls, but also have a lot of strengths, they're very conceptually built. They're very thought-driven. And sometimes boarding school could learn a good lesson from that. And I just think that we can all talk to each other and we can collaborate with each other and we can use these strengths that each of us have to strengthen both of them. And it's just been so fun to me seeing, you know, both sides of this world. It's a great adventure. So we've talked about this before, but just relationship building with students. I know you talked Mm -hmm. about it just a little bit in regards to what that looks like in the boarding school, but I want to talk about in the classroom too, because I know we've talked a little bit about restorative practices before through um, a Facebook Live, and I know that you're really passionate about knowing your student's story. So will you just share with our listeners how you get to the bottom of relationship building in your classroom? A hundred conversations about nothing. That That's my biggest rule. Before I can talk to my students about anything serious or deep, they need to know that I care about what they had for lunch. They need to know that I care that they ate lunch. They need to know that I think their shirt is really cute and I like it. And, oh, you did something different with your hair. And, hey, I saw you talking to so-and-so. I know them. They were in the play. How neat is that? Or they just need to know that you know who they are. If you ever hope for them to open up and show you the parts of them that that are a little scarier to show. So... That happens in the classroom, it happens in the hallway, it happens at lunch, it happens as I'm walking into the building and out of the building. It happens when um, a student comes into my class and they look a little extra tired. And they're gonna say either, oh, I was swamped with homework, or they're gonna say, I was watching that one new show on Netflix and I stayed up way too late. In which case I'm gonna say, oh, that's a good show. I'm not gonna say, don't stay up late. You need to sleep. That conversation comes a month later. I'm going to say, I love that show. That's so great. What time did you stay up till 3am? Oh my gosh. It's no wonder you're so tired. Right? So it's this, it's this really casual dialogue that makes kids feel safe admitting to you that they stayed up till 3am watching Netflix or make them feel safe saying I'm really homesick or I'm really lonely or this friend just isn't talking to me anymore. And it's ways, it's how you infuse those conversations within your conversations about math and within your conversations about homework and studying and all of these different things. And it's constantly, constantly on my mind. When I'm driving into school, I, I run through a mental list of my students and I say, okay, this kid had a big test a couple days ago in another class. I hope they're doing okay. Maybe I should just say, hey, you doing all right? to that kid. Like I I go through my mental list of all my students and I I make kind of mental conversations that I might want to have with them because the relationship with my kids is the most important thing because they're not going to learn a lick of math unless they feel safe in my classroom, unless they feel like I care about who they are. They might hear me and they might do the assignment and they might get a skill, but they're not going to actually acquire what I desperately want them to have, which is a love and a passion for learning, unless they know I believe in who they are. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it comes down, and I say this all the time, knowing the kid's story. And you can't just sit down with the kid and say, what's your story? Tell me everything. You've got to get to know them over time 
and carefully, the same way I learned that you can't walk into a classroom of teachers and say, hey, this idea is great, I'm doing it, let me teach you. You can't walk up to a, a student and say, hey, you look stressed out, tell me all your life problems and I'm gonna fix everything. That doesn't work. It's painfully slow and it requires such emotional vulnerability on your part and such careful responses on your part so that if they do happen to open up to you at a critical moment, you have measured your response very carefully because when a kid opens up and they're vulnerable, the next five words you say can make or break that relationship with the student. You can't say, oh man, that sucks. <laughs> you, you can't say, you should have gone to sleep. You can't say, what do you mean you didn't study for your test? You, you can't do that because you're going to close the door to that relationship and it's going to take you two more months to build it to the point where it cracks open again. Yep. So from, from day one, my mind is on relationships. And if you get that, the rest falls into place. You can have kids who will cross oceans for you, who will who will walk through fire, who will sacrifice their Netflix and video game time just to come hang out with you and talk about math if you can build the relationship. Mm -hmm. As the story is the most important part yep. for any human being. I mean, really, like colleagues, students, administrators, random people on Twitter, know the story and you can know the person. So you talked about math education. So let's switch gears a little bit. So in regards mm -hmm. to math, I know that we've talked a little bit in the past about math education, especially high school, and that mm -hmm. there might be a crossroads and, and possibly a crisis in high school math education. So why yeah. do you believe that high school math might become obsolete? So, so this is something that I've gotten pushback from, from a lot of high school math teachers. And I, I still don't hesitate to say it because I believe it with everything. When we hear students complain about, I'm not gonna use this in my everyday life. Why do I need to know how to add fractions? Why do I need to be able to do calculus? I'm never gonna use this in my life. A lot of times the, the math teacher's standard response is because math just isn't, isn't just about solving equations, it's about teaching you how to think. And that excuse falls completely flat on 95% of the population. And I think right now, most high schools are kind of on this track of algebra one, geometry, algebra two, calculus. It's like the, the span of courses that everybody takes. And maybe instead of calculus, you take statistics, maybe. But it's kind of the anticipated order of things. But if you look at algebra two content, most of that really is never applicable to the majority of our students. And so the question is, if it's not actually applicable, is it the best way to teach our students how to think? Because I completely agree with the goal of math being a wonderful tool to teach our students how to problem solve and think complexly and you know push their ability to, to critically solve issues. Math is a great tool for that, but not if we lose them because they think it's useless. Mm -hmm. So math education, high school math education especially, I think needs to kind of burn everything to the ground and start building again from scratch. Mm -hmm. and. There's this idea that I, I get when I talk to math teachers about that, that, well, if we just build it from the ground again, it's gonna look a lot the same. Well, that's a problem because it really shouldn't look the same. You know, if, if you look at what the world needs in terms of mathematical thinking, 
the vast majority of the math that we ever ask a high school algebra or calculus student to do is done in the real world by a computer. And the job of the adult is to interpret those results, perhaps feed different inputs into the computer, perhaps give the computer different parameters and interpret those new results. Right. So it's not about uh, calculation. It's not about calculus. It's about interpreting a situation and then using the tools in front of us, which aren't just algebra equations, they're computers and using the tools in front of us in order to determine a series of possible outcomes and then judge those possible outcomes. So if you look at kind of the standard upper level math course, how often are you asking students to really do that? How often are you asking them to take a vague situation, use the tools surrounding them with a foundation of K through eight math, which I still think it's important that kids know fractions. And I still think it's important that they know what a variable is and how to solve a multi-step linear equation. Yeah, those are all really good things that we should not let go of. But simply making it a more complex equation or making it a logarithm instead of a quadratic or doing all these different things to it doesn't actually build the skills our students need. Our students need to be able to take the tools, feed them into something and interpret the results. And that's really where I think math needs to go. And I think that there's so much potential out there for how we could actually make math relevant yes. by looking at fields that use those processes, which are inherently mathematical processes, but we don't consider them math because math is three X to the fourth plus two X squared equals negative 45. Right. You know, and, and so we're really missing the boat and we're losing kids. We're yeah. losing kids mathematically who just feel like math is the medicine they have to take in order to get through. And that just make, breaks my heart because math is so cool, especially when math is used to solve real problems that yeah. exist all around us every day. And that's what's lost is that, like you said, using it for real problems in the world, seeing the connection, and instead of it just being math in a box by itself, mm -hmm let's connect it to some other subjects and real world situations. And there's so much resistance to that idea. So much resistance, so much holding on to, well, of course students should be able to do calculus. That's an indication of a really agile mind and a really sophisticated mind. And that should be the goal for students. And if we only do real world application, we're not helping students get to a point where they understand the beauty of math. Yep. And that's a, that's a hard argument to push against. It's one that I do push against, but there is a lot of resistance there. Yep. And I'm not sure, I'm not confident that things are moving at a fast enough pace to recover well from. Cool. You know what I mean? Like, like things have to change rapidly because the world is changing so rapidly. Yeah. And there's so much resistance that it's just slowing things down. And that's why I feel like in the next 10 years, there's it's a crisis. Mm -hmm. There's a major crisis in terms of math education that we need to address. Well, I think you made a good point too in regards to what computers are doing for us and for professions. I feel like on Twitter, you know, on online, there's some news story about how AI is taking over certain types of jobs and yeah. um, that's only gonna increase, not decrease. So how are we preparing our students for that world? So I'm gonna move topics again. Okay, <laughs> so. this is fun. <laughs> Jump. <laughs> So you all, as the Teach Better team, have constructed a book. It is out. It is wonderful. I love it. And I have had three of the four authors on the Aspire podcast. So, And I want to know yeah. just kind of your part in that book. And for those who haven't read it, maybe just a, a chunk of what Tiffany provided to the Teach Better book. 
This was such a fun, exhausting, uh, traumatizing, spectacular experience. Um, you know, when we first had the idea of writing a book in its very um, amoebic-like state, very unsure where it was going, it was all built around this concept of being better today than we were yesterday and being better tomorrow than we are today. That's the, the foundational concept of every single thing we do. And then looking at that, and saying, okay, how, how can we actually provide this message in a way that people are going to be able to hear it, to be able to understand it and be able to feel like they can do something with it. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember exactly how we landed on the structure of the book. So if you haven't, if anyone hasn't read it, I described the book as part memoir, part strategies to implement right away um, and part inspiration. So Throughout the book, all four of our stories are woven in. So there'll be a section where it's my personal story from a moment in my career, followed by some details about how you can implement a strategy that I use in my own classroom, followed by a story from Ray about how she tried that and it failed. Mm -hmm. And then what she did, you know, it's, it's this, it's our story enmeshed with strategies. And so when in the early process of this book, we literally had like 16 Google Docs of different chapter, potential chapter titles, mm-hmm. like assess better and grade better and expect better and all of these different better things. And we dumped every thought and every story we could possibly have about that topic into this document. So each document was easily 15 pages long and t- a total mishmash of nonsensical ideas, just stream of consciousness ideas, blogs that we've written, posted in, like it was a hot mess. (laughs) And then that was all well and good. And then we had to take that and kind of figure out what exactly we were saying in that and how to turn it into a chapter that was accessible to other people. Um, I like writing. I like writing a lot. So there was a lot of that process that I sat down in a coffee shop and spent two hours staring at a 15 page document and another three to four hours writing something. Mm -hmm. And then that would bounce back to the rest of the team and they would add things or they would say, this doesn't make any sense. It was just so so much back and forth, but really that, that process of bringing all of our experiences together and telling a story, telling a story about, the four of us and not only how the four of us came to be the teach better team, but how the four of us have all hit rock bottom and grown through it. And it was a really fun story to write. Mm -hmm. It was, it was really interesting. I spent last winter break every day. My husband kicked me out of the house at 6am and I wrote for about 10 hours for two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was really interesting. And we'd get on these team phone calls where we'd literally tear apart every sentence and spend 30 minutes talking about a word sure. and whether this word said what we wanted it to say. Mm-hmm. Oh, what an experience that was. <laughs> well, that, that would be interesting too. It's not like, you know, if you're just writing a book solo, you know, you have full, full control and control. And then yeah. you have a team <laughs> to go through each sentence. That would be, uh, it sounds like a daunting task. Yeah. And you know, the, the first couple chapters we did on the phone together as a team, it took a long time and there was a lot of tension. We and we never hide on the team the fact that we fight and argue like a bunch of siblings that are way too close <laughs> in age, right? But after we kind of got the rhythm and the voice and the feel of those first couple chapters, then it was like, okay, I know what these people need here. 
So let's get that into a chapter and then we don't have to spend quite as long going back and forth about things. But yes, it was it was challenging. <laughs> well, I love a good challenge. Yeah, it's a good challenge. And let's talk about the challenge of constructing your first Teach Better conference. <laughs> <laughs> we have both experienced that. I honestly, from my own opinion, and the listeners know this, I've, I've gushed over the, the experience. You guys did a phenomenal job, but I just want to know kind of what that looked like for you is not only constructing a conference as the Teach Better team, but then also going through that, living through that. And then of course, at the end of it, announcing the second Teach Better conference for 2020. Yeah. yeah you know, the birth of the conference idea was a while ago and, and it started as maybe we should just have an open workshop where anybody can come and figure out mastery learning. <laughs> That's where this idea started. And then it was, well, what if we like kind of set it up like a conference? That might be kind of cool. And then the idea just exploded and we started saying, we should do a call for presenters and we got to make a website. We've got to do all this kind of stuff. And now we have to watch a hundred videos of people who want to present. And it was a beast that grew and grew and grew. And interesting fact about conferences, if you ever host one, 80% of your registrations come in the last month. So in August, we're sitting there, we've never put on a conference before. We're looking at, you know, 20% of the registrations we need in order to like not lose thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. as a company. And it's this moment we were like, do we cancel? Do we not cancel? Incredibly stressful. Sure. Well worth it because it turned out to be one of the most incredible experiences of my life. From day one, when we're talking about this conference, we knew right away that the vibe of the conference was the most important thing to us, that we wanted people to feel like they were getting together with friends that they've had for ages. We wanted people to feel like they weren't going to see people speak. They were going to be part of people's network, even people that they might be intimidated by or people that are like, quote, big names, right? Mm -hmm. We wanted everybody to feel like this is our family and and we're just hanging out trying to be better together. And so every decision we made was very, very conscious of that. Every promotion we did, the way that we talked about featured speakers, it was all very intentional. And so the couple days before the conference, I'm sitting there thinking, I hope it goes okay. I think it'll be okay. Yeah, it's gonna be okay. And then the conference starts, the, the networking event the night before the conference, right? At, at Wing Warehouse. Yep. And I walk in and I'm like, this is it. This is the vibe. Okay, there's like 30 people here. We're all a big family, giving each other hugs. This is what we were going for. And my wildest expectations for how the conference would feel were exceeded. And the fact that I've heard from so many people who were there that it felt like they were coming home to a reunion to hanging out with friends is so powerful. And paired with that, we're also very conscious of the fact that fluff isn't enough. Ray said that actually in her keynote, right? Fluff isn't enough. And you can't just have this really fun music filled, exciting conference with cool networking events without also actually challenging people to really, really push themselves, look in that really difficult mirror and criticize themselves in order to grow. And so like just the the way that paired together felt really good. Yeah. I liked it. It was, it was hard, but it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Wonderful. And I can't wait for 2020. 
Yeah, um, we got to get that planning. Right? <laughs> <laughs> On the to-do list. On the to-do list, just a few mm-hmm. items. So Tiffany, in closing, I know we've talked about grading practices and boarding schools and mathematics and how it's changing for the future. But I want to go back to leadership and I want to know if you could just give one piece of advice to our aspiring leaders, what would that be? This is going to sound so trite perhaps, but it is it is truly the most important thing you can do is listen and hear. You have to sit down and talk to people. The same way I talk about building a relationship with my students and how what that takes and what that looks like, leadership has to do the same to the people that they're leading. Because otherwise you're never going to build any kind of culture or any kind of movement towards positive growth if people don't feel like you hear them. Yep. And you have to be really intentional about it. Also smile a lot and show up in classrooms. <laughs> that, that's, that's two bonus ones, right? Like smile at people all the time yep. and get your butt into classrooms constantly. Just constantly make yourself a presence in classrooms. I wish my admin came into my classroom more, yep. please. Um, hang out every day. Let's do it. Yeah, it's true. And And admin, I know admins are are crunched for time. I know that they're crazy, crazy busy, and and I get that. But listen and hear and be present. So as a admin, I would say, and so I just told a teacher this the other day, is that the days I get in the classrooms are my favorite days. Yeah. Because they don't happen enough. (laughs) Yeah, I love the idea of leading, and I love the idea of being a part of growth. If I'm ever in administration, priority number one is how am I going to be with kids every day? How am I going to be in it? Because otherwise my soul will shrivel because I love kids. I love kids so much. Totally, It's tough. Tiffany, how can our listeners connect with you on social media? Uh, Yeah. So Twitter is the best one. I'm, I'm on other accounts, but not very successfully. So Twitter, my handle is at techie teach aunt. I'm also Facebook has a private group for the teach better team, which is a really excellent resource. Yes that has thousands of teachers who are all really trying to push and do innovative practices. And there's so much support in that group. Like you put a problem there and you'll have an army of people ready to help you solve your problem. So those two are, are probably the best ways. Yep. They can also email me, Tiffany at teachbetter.com. And if I don't reply, nag me, cause sometimes I'm bad at replying to emails. <laughs> So just bug me about it until I do. I won't mind, I promise. (laughs) Definitely connect with Tiffany and definitely connect with the Teach Better team. They have so many different resources out there and you can connect with them on all different types of social media outlets. Tiffany, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun geeking out for a long time about education. (laughs) 